This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 499th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a remarkable English actor of stage and screen whose career spans seven decades and has been recognized with Emmy, Tony, SAG, and Golden Globe Award nominations, as well as two Olivier Awards. He spent the first decades of his career working primarily in the theater, distinguishing himself to the extent that the Evening Standard described him as one of our finest Shakespearean actors. Then, a fateful series of events in 1987 led to him, at the age of 47, becoming Jean-Luc Picard, the captain of the Starship Enterprise on the syndicated TV drama series Star Trek The Next Generation, the first incarnation of Star Trek without Kirk, Spock, or McCoy. That show ran for 178 episodes over seven years, spawned four feature films, and in 2020 was spun off into the Paramount Plus drama series Star Trek Picard, which came to an end in April after a three-season run, and for which many feel that this actor, at the age of 82, deserves a special send-off from the TV Academy. To which I say, make it so. Sir Patrick Stewart. Over the course of our conversation at Stewart's home in Los Angeles, ahead of a visit from his Star Trek co-star and dear friend Jonathan Frakes that I was lucky enough to witness, the thespian, who lost his hair at 19 and possesses what the New York Times has aptly described as an aura of stern yet fair authority and seriousness of purpose, reflected on his rather dark childhood and how stage acting came to provide him with a much-needed escape, how a reading that he performed at UCLA against all odds led to his casting on Star Trek The Next Generation, and how he came to understand and embrace the character Picard, and how years later, after doing all sorts of other things, from great work in the theater to starring as Professor Charles Xavier in seven blockbuster X-Men films to voicing characters for Seth MacFarlane's Family Guy and American Dad, he was convinced to return to the part for which he is most famous, on Star Trek Picard, on which we find Picard long retired with the rank of Admiral, residing back on Earth on his French vineyard with some assistants and dogs, and, as he puts it, not living, but waiting to die, until, that is, he ventures once more into battle. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Sir Patrick, thank you so much for having us to your home to do this and honored to speak with you. 
On this podcast, every episode, we begin at the very beginning. So for anyone who may not know, can you share where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? I was born uh, in a small town in the north of England in what was known West Riding. And it was called Murphy. It is still called Murfield. They haven't yet named it, renamed it Patrick Stewart. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a, a small town of about 9,000 population. Um, sandwiched between much bigger cities like Huddersfield, Leeds, Bradford. So it was the, um, the hilly part of the north of England, which I enjoyed very much because it meant that there was always somewhere to walk, um, always somewhere to take the dog that wasn't on a sidewalk like here, you know. And um, it's, um, but it's now in my past. My family have mostly, I have one niece who still lives in Murfield. And when you were there, what, what, were, what were your parents' uh, occupations? Well, I was born in 1940. And my father was at war and had been for, um, I think, the attack on, on France um, happened around about September, October 39. I've done some sums and it is very possible that, um, that my birthing began on the day before my father went to war. Wow. Um, and so military things have always played a part, well, certainly in my early life. Yes. And I lived with my mother, Gladys, and her, bro and her uh, second son, who was five years older than me, Trevor. And that's him and me. Beautiful there. photo, yeah. Uh, it's very, very, my, he died a year ago. and. Sorry. It's a very, very important photograph. Yes. Um, in fact, both of these are very, very important. This is uh, oh, yeah. my best friend, Bernard Lloyd. Wow. And that's the two of us in Winter's Tale at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Fantastic, yeah. And here is such warmth and sympathy in his face. Absolutely. That having here, him here helps me get through some days. Great. Now... You mentioned that your father had been off at war for quite a while, which might, in, in the way we understand things today, explain some of the behavior that you've written about, most notably in a piece in 2009 in The Guardian, which I came upon while preparing for this. And I was very uh, struck by just your candor and, and the impact that he had on you. And I, I wonder if I can just quote back here a few sentences of that. Quote, he was an angry, unhappy and frustrated man who was not able to control his emotions or his hands. As a child, I witnessed his repeated violence against my mother and the terror and misery he caused was such that if I felt I could have succeeded, I would have killed him, close quote. So obviously a, a terrible thing to grow up around. And understandably, you were quite interested in escaping that environment, right? How did, how did acting first emerge as a way to do that? Well, just to put this in context, the first five years of my life were blissful. 
I was born in the one-up, one-down house we lived in. I mean, I mean, literally, one room downstairs, one room upstairs, mm. with a partitioned-off corner where my brother and I slept. Mm. My brother and I slept in the same bed together for almost 15 years. Wow. wow. Um, I was 12 when my English teacher, Cecil Dormand, at my secondary modern school, I was not an academic <laughs> boy. One day, Cecil, my English teacher, went around distributing copies of a play around the classroom. And uh, he told us to open the play, which was called The Merchant of Venice, mm -hmm. and that he would cast it. So he went from uh, role to role, and I thought I was going to be left out, which actually made me feel good because <laughs> I, I looked at this and it meant nothing to me. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, Patrick, uh, you're Shylock. Mm. And, um, and he said, so all right, start, start reading because he'd cast everybody. And we all started reading. Heads dropped forward, reading silently. And he yelled at us, not to yourselves, you idiots. Out loud, this is drama, this is life, this is theater. And uh, so I said my first Shakespearean line. And later on that year, my English teacher cast me in a a play, playing a very small role, but there was a drama group in my school which consisted of the staff, mm -hmm. none of the pupils, but I was to play a 14-year-old boy. I always looked older than my actual age. And the very first time I walked onto the stage in the school hall, which is where performances happened and, and presentations and medals and so forth were given out, and every morning the assembly met in that hall, I simply found that the stage where I was pretending to be someone else was the safest place I had ever been. And that's when it started. Now, Cecil Dorman, who I believe passed away a couple of years ago, you described him as he, quote, has without a doubt been the most significant person in my life, close quote. Part of that was introducing you to what, what you've just described, but I guess he also, in a way, handed you off to your next acting instructor who you worked with for several years. And, and I think, you know, when, when people hear your voice is instantly recognized all over the world, you have the tone, the enunciation, everything. However, at that time when he... Uh, I believe connected you or, or it worked out that you were with Ruth when Owen, you sounded rather different at that point, right? Yes. I had grown up surrounded by people with Yorkshire and to be more specific, West Riding or Pennine accents. Uh, and this was not just how we pronounced words, but what the words actually were. We spoke dialect. Um, I, I always give the same example because it's a, ve it's a very good one. Um, if, if I was n coming to knock on your door when you were a child, and so was I, and you opened the door, I would say to you, Atalekinat, Atalekinat. 
Ata, art thou? Because in my family home, we said thou and thee about other people and them, of course. Um, and now we're back in that world again. That's <laughs> right, the pronouns. Yes, yes which, <laughs> which is very important. Yes. Um, Atta, art thou, Lakin, is at, at least a 15th century word, meaning playing. Actors in that time in Shakespeare's company were called Lakers, not actors, mm -hmm. but Lakers or players. Um, art is the pronunciation of out. Are you coming out to play at a lake and out? That's how I talked. So people who did not live in our neighborhood couldn't understand us. We were speaking a foreign language. Mm. And it was Ruth Winnowen who became also one of my teachers, though not in an official, formal capacity. I had met her at an eight-day uh, drama course organized by the West Riding County Council for amateur actors and directors and scenic designers. That kind of thing doesn't happen no. today, which is sad, if not tragic. And it wouldn't have happened for you, right, had apparently Cecil Dorman not footed the bill. That's right. Um, the important thing when I went home and told my parents that I'd been invited to go to this eight-day residential course. And they said, who's going to pay for it? And I'd never considered that. <laughs> and so the next day at school, I asked, sir, if, if, uh, if he knew what the payment would be. And uh, he said, oh, oh, no, no, it won't cost you anything. Only the bus fare to get there. And so it was... Much later in my life, I knew what had happened. That's great. Which was that he, my English teacher, had paid for me to go on this course. And um, that's not the reason that I owe him so much. But he did to go on and direct me in plays at school and to talk to me about Shakespeare. So it began there. Then on this course, I met Ruth Winnowen, who had been a professional actress, was now retired. She had understudied Dame Peggy Ashcroft many times. And so she had been close to and in the hands of a woman who I think it's fair to say was the leading British actress of her, stage actress of her time. Wow. And um, I, uh, she invited me to go to her home at weekends, just on Sundays. So that meant about five hours of being in buses, oh. and then maybe five hours with her. And she invited other young people too. And so I had high-level coaching. But early on, she said to me, Patrick, you know, if, if you really want to go on doing this, you're going to have to change your accent because you can't talk like this. With So you need to learn um, RP, received pronunciation, which is how the BBC newsreaders talked in those days, in the 40s and 50s. But not with highly sophisticated accents, just with a standard English accent. Even uh, our king had an accent that was entirely his own. The royal family right. always spoke of men wearing trises, <laughs> not trousers, trises. Right, right. Well, you got yours <laughs> under control, your accent. And then I guess, you know, this this 
My my understanding was that even as you were getting more and more involved in theater, it was sort of was it looked down upon or teased by your father in a way? No. No. And that was one of the great aspects, features of my getting into acting and plays and being on a stage in front of an audience. We had in my 9,000 population town, we had around 10 amateur drama groups and they were all associated to churches and chapels. I've so far, I've never got above eight, but there were eight different kinds of church and chapel in my community. And they all, if only once a year, they would do some kind of public performance. So it was normal. It was natural. You weren't being fanciful or showing off. You were simply entertaining the local population. And the decision, though, at 15, you're going to leave school, you're going to pursue this while, I guess, doing the the responsible thing of also working at a newspaper, making making a, uh, somewhat of a income doing that. You know, just this idea that you were now kind of taking decisive action towards pursuing acting. Was that at that point you're thinking, I can do this for the rest of my life? It's a little early what you're saying. Yeah. Because um, I was 15 and two days old <laughs> when I left school. My right, education right. was over. Right. That was all you had to do in those days. Really? Okay. I mean, my father, from decades before, had only, had only left school at 14. So only one more year of education right. had benefited us, right. so, uh, other than the generation that my father came from. I was offered unexpectedly and quite out of promotion a job on a newspaper as a very junior cub reporter. Um, when my English teacher finally said to in the last days I was at school, you should take up acting, Patrick, as a professional. And I said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. I can't do that. I'm, I'm an amateur actor and I love it. So why, why would I want to be a professional actor? So I went to the newspaper after a year, I was fired. Because you'd been neglecting it yes. for acting. <laughs> and, yes. Um, I had been having other people write my pieces for me. If I was rehearsing, rather than going to another town council meeting, or I would just make them up. <laughs> of course, I deserved to be fired. But my Henry Wilson, the editor of the paper, gave me an option. Uh, an option. You can stop doing this silly amdrams, they used to call it, amdrams, and, uh, and work on this newspaper and have a good career and a good life. Or you get off my paper now. And I said, thank you, Mr. Wilson. Goodbye. And I went downstairs <laughs> and I packed up my typewriter. Right. And I got a job in a furniture store. And for a year, I sold very beautiful furniture in the most expensive furniture store uh, in, a, in a town called Dewsbury for miles and miles around. And I got very good at it. And I was saving some money. But I also, uh, with the support of Ruth Winnowen, auditioned for drama school and got a place. This is the Old Vic Theatre. The, the old, Bristol, Bristol Old Vic. Old Vic Theatre School, yes. And uh, that was so exciting because I didn't expect it to happen. The scholarship? Uh, well... The scholarship came later. Later, okay. 
And it came not from the school, but from my local county council. Wow. My parents couldn't afford to send me away to college for two years. It was I hadn't, didn't have the money. I decided I would have to approach our local authority. So I went to the county council awards department, educational department, and I did a very, very difficult interview with them. I remember one of them, there were eight men behind a table saying to me, Saul Patrick, if that's, um, if that's going to do this job, uh, I knows, uh, what good is it going to do us if you're an actor in London? And uh, so I said, oh, no, no, I will come back here as often as I can and work here. And actually, as luck would have it, that's what exactly what I did. And I worked in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire for nearly two years, Lincoln Rep and Sheffield mm -hmm. Rep. So I was 17 when I went to drama school. And uh, another wonderful young man called Robin Phillips, who uh, ran the Shakespeare um, Theatre in, uh, in Canada for years. He and I were the two youngest people in my year, and um, things worked out quite well. I was going to say, I mean, I, I think within just a, a couple of years, you're touring the world with Vivian Lee as part of their, their touring company. You're, you're on your way, but it seems like you knew from pretty early on that the pinnacle of what you would hope to achieve at that point would have been to become part of the Royal Shakespeare Company, which I didn't realize you actually, I don't know if it was the fact that you just wanted to audition and were declined that opportunity a few times, but when you finally get to go there and you've described it as a Sunday in November of 65, you go in there, I think that director of the artistic director, Peter Hall, the casting director, um, Morris Daniels, Morris Daniels, and then John Barton, you're there. And I think it's finally the fourth time you've at, you've gone out for the opportunity audition, you get to audition. And I wonder if you can talk about just, it's a, one of the most important dates, I think, in your life, right? Oh, yes. And it was a rainy, cold November and Sunday night. And the theatre was cold. All the heating was turned off because this was, this was Britain, you know, in the, uh, in the 50s and uh, 60s, rather, I should say. I walked in the rain from a friend's house who was already in the company, somebody who enviously had been chosen by the RSC and not me. And um, I, I walked towards the theatre, which was all dark, and the stage doorman let me in and said, oh, yes, they're, they're, they told me you were coming. They're waiting for you. They're out. In the... So, and he said, go through that door, turn left. Go through another door, turn left. I did that, and I was standing in the wings of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. And there were a few lights on the stage, and I walked onto the stage, and I saw three people sitting out way, way back in the stalls in an empty theatre, of course, and it was freezing cold. And um, it was those three names that you have mentioned. And um, I did my audition for them. And it became clear to me very early on that it was not just going to be an audition, but they were going to give me direction. And that it was largely to do with, could I take direction rather than could I act? Yes, they'd assumed I could act because they'd seen me elsewhere doing things. But... 
could I respond to direction and the text in the way that by that time the Royal Shakespeare Company was passionate that actors did because Peter Hall and then Trevor Nunn who followed him were so so determined to bring about a contemporary modern feeling to plays that were 400 years old um, and they employed me and yeah. I I, I was um, I remember when I left the audition, um, my uh, my wife had asked me to call her because outside the stage door uh, of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre was a red telephone kiosk because we didn't have <laughs> we didn't have a phone. My parents never had a phone until I bought them one sometime in rather about two thousand, <laughs> and there were no cell phones, of course. Um, and I'd said I would call my wife and tell her, and she said, how did it go? And I couldn't speak. I was so emotional. And she said, oh, was it bad? And I said, no, they've offered me a place in the company. And it was extraordinary. And that's, I guess, the next 12 years of your yep. life. And N Never went anywhere else or worked anywhere else. But... What was so brilliant about that time was that, yes, Shakespeare was the center and focus of all the work, but we also did uh, Harold Pinter. Uh, we did uh, um, 18th century melodrama. Uh, we did uh, uh, Ibsen, and it was a weighty time of learning, of learning understanding and interpreting plays over a 400, 500 year period. And I guess within that 12 years though, I don't know if it was the company that that went to Broadway, but you had your Broadway debut, right? In the early seventies, was it? In Midsummer Night's Dream. And I mean, you, you it was really, uh, you know, I, I think it, I just, for people who maybe discovered you through Star Trek, I think they need to understand you'd had a very rich and successful career on the stage long before any of that. Oh, yes. It was my education. Yeah. Because in spite of the cleverness and brilliance and support of Cecil Dormand and people like Ruth Owen, I wasn't educated. We'd done, you know, the, the most significant um, sessions that we had at my school were when we would do a whole afternoon of woodwork and a whole afternoon of what was called metalwork classes. Um, and because that's what those children, of which I was one, were being prepared for, which was to do manual jobs. Sure. You know. um, and so there was almost everything to learn. I'd been reading seriously from the age of about 15 and i'd been seeing serious movies as well in that time i saw every movie i could see well, i would often go to the cinema three times a week all my pocket money went on uh, uh, cinema tickets and uh, and maybe taking a girlfriend with me once or twice this though is a perfect transition that you provide thank you because around the 
early 70s, mid 70s is when you really start doing some major screen work yourself, screen acting for the first time, I think. Um, several miniseries for the BBC that are still among the most highly regarded. Then film, Trevor Nunn did Hedda with Glenda Jackson in the seven, mid 70s. We, uh, we could go on. I guess my question is, did you acclimate to screen acting as as easily as not as easily I don't that's the wrong word but did you enjoy it as much as you enjoyed stage acting or was there a, a learning curve there that or did it take a while I can't say that I enjoyed it I was frightened of it um yes the the uh drama that I did for BBC um involved five camera recordings so cameras were given permission and then you acted the scene as if you were on stage wow um so it wasn't, there wasn't much education about film. Although I did work with some of the very best directors at the BBC, and I would always let them know, tell me, tell me, please, if something's not working or wrong, I need to know. If, it's, if this isn't good for a camera, um, explain that to me. And uh, this went right on until my first day on a film, um, and uh, this is something also that I've talked about before, so I'm, I apologize. That's but I did a tiny role, a day and a half's work, in a film starring Rod Steiger. Now, it just happened that Mr. Steiger, or Rod, that he insisted that I called him, mm -hmm. um, uh, had impressed me almost as much as anybody else had. And my, for many, many, many years... My favorite film was On the Waterfront mm -hmm. with Marlon Brando and, uh, and, and Rod Steiger and Lee J. Cobb. Um, and he said to me on that first day, because he invited me, when he learned that it was my first day on a film set, he invited me to have lunch at his trailer. Wow. And I didn't even know where to get lunch. I didn't know where you... <laughs> so he explained that to me and I took it to his trailer. And he very kindly let me ask him a lot of questions. And... Uh, the most significant thing was when we were finishing our lunch and about to go, he said, the one most important thing you have to remember, the camera photographs thoughts. I, I never considered that for a moment in any acting that I did. I wasn't wanting people to read my mind. I was wanting them to be impressed by my, my, my voice or my movement. You know, I was a very physical actor. Well, you had to reach the back of the theater. Well, there was that. Yes, of course. Now, I relish the fact that here I am speaking like this and don't have to do anything <laughs> bigger than that. And, and, uh, but, but Mr. Steiger's saying the camera photographs thoughts was perhaps the most significant instruction yeah. that I was given when it comes to Film work. That's great. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a name that I'm going to bring up that I doubt any of, very few of our listeners are going to know. But without him, the last 40 some odd years of your life, I guess, would have been very different. Who is Robert Justman and where did you guys cross paths? We crossed paths first without me knowing it. I had begun teaching me, <laughs> um, but it, it was uh, to teach acting um, and plays and drama. And it was a brilliant professor of English from the University of California, Santa Barbara, who, who created this new little offshoot of, of a life for me. And I loved doing it. I told him I couldn't do it. And then I did one session and found I'd only answered two questions in, in the hour that I'd been with the, the pupils. So um, another um, English professor, David Rhodes, here at UCLA, invited me to uh, illustrate a public lecture he was giving about drama. And he had already asked an actress friend if she would um, agree to read extracts, and he asked me as well, so we could do duologues or solo speeches. The next morning, I got a phone call. I was staying with my with David Rhodes at his house, and, oh, he said, it's for you. And it was my agent in Los Angeles, whom I had never met and never <laughs> never spoken with. But I was told, yes, you have an agent. Right. If ever something comes up, right. he will deal with it. And he was on the phone, and he said, I've got two questions for you. What the hell were you doing at UCLA last night? And why does Gene Roddenberry want to see you this morning? <laughs> and, uh, and I remember saying, who's Gene Roddenberry? Who's she? Yeah. <laughs> because I assumed it was J-E-A-N-R-A-N-D-N. You know, I'd never heard of him. You had not been a star. You'd not been a Trekkie. No, no. I'd not. But I had seen my children watching something on Saturday afternoons. when I used to come home after the matinee, if I could. Mm -hmm. I'd race home in my car, which I do enjoy doing, <laughs> even today. And, um, and I would uh, sit with them while they had their supper and maybe even get a story in and then race back to the theater to do my evening show. And um, sometimes when I got back, they were watching TV and it was these guys in different colored T-shirts and it looked silly to me. I didn't understand <laughs> it. But they always insisted that they watch it to the, to the end. Um, so, no, I, I, I had to be brought up to speed. Well, so, and just this, this guy, Robert Justman's the one that, I guess he, had, he was a producer of the original telecast? Yes. He was the producer of the one, um, uh, the very first one that Gene had created. Mm. G-E-N-E. -E. Yes. Um, and, uh, um, and he he was the one that calls up Gene and who I guess had been thinking already we should revive the the show. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. They were already working on it. Mm. Um, and Robert Justman was his principal uh, executive co-producer. 
Um, later on, uh, Rick Berman then also joined that team, and Rick, of course, became the most important man in Star Trek. Sadly, tragically, Gene died uh, towards the end of our third season. Yeah. But yeah. when you first are connected with him by your agent and you, not knowing anything about him or the show, what was his pitch essentially to you? I went to his home. He lived somewhere off Laurel Canyon. It was a rather sort of shabby, one-storied bungalow house. And uh, because the, the original Star Trek had not done very well, right? No, it hadn't. It hadn't. And um, I arrived there, knocked on the door, and went inside. There were three men in the living room. One of them was sitting down, and he levered himself out of the chair he was in and said, Hello, I'm Gene. And um, so I knew I was meeting the main guy right away. Robert Justman introduced himself. And um, when I was leaving, he did say to me, and thank you for what you did last night. I said, what do you mean? He said, I was in the audience, and I, that's why you're here today. Mm -hmm. And uh, the meeting lasted less than 10 minutes. And Gene suddenly said, rather brusquely, well, I think we're done. <laughs> and... Uh, and I left, and I was rather glad to get out of that house. I didn't care for it there. During the time you were there, during those 10 minutes, though, had he communicated, I want you to anchor this new... No. So it was just about no. meeting you to get a feel for you. Yeah, that's all. And when I left, and Robert, who, Robert Justman showed me out of the door, he went back in and said, what? The? And Gene said to him, what the hell do you think you were doing <laughs> inviting that thing to come in here? That's all this... Completely wrong. Wow. And I auditioned two more times. I was flown from London to audition. Now, just in case anyone's living under a rock, can we just set, set up, because we're going to talk about him going forward. Jean-Luc Picard, the captain of the Enterprise. This is the first incarnation of Star Trek since the original with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're talking about with Star Trek, new gen uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, 24th century, about 85 years, I think, after the original guys, right? And you now get offered this part. And was it an immediate yes for you? Because again, just to set up your answer, the first series had not done very well. It was a cult thing. Uh, you had seemed to be enjoying your life up to that point, right? So and I don't know what people around you were advising, but I don't think it was a slam dunk at all that this was going to be a, a well-received show. So what what were the factors that you considered when weighing whether or not to take the part? I was considering what I'd been told and what if I were to be offered this work, what impact it would have on the rest of my work. Because um, as we approached the end of 1986, I was already beginning to uh, put in place my stage work for 1987, which included transferring a production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I think the great American play of the 20th century, in my modest opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Arthur Miller. <laughs> <laughs> um, the transfer of 
who was afraid of Virginia Woolf, was actually going into the West End of London, ah. which meant even more to me because it was still the place where I wanted to be at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and when I consulted, I knew one or two people here in Hollywood, which is now where I live. Yes. And I'd say to them, look, I don't know what to do about this because if, if, if this works for me, because oh, I'd learned from my agent, the contract would be for six years. That was a jolt, right? <laughs> oh, it was horrifying. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, I can't, I can't do this for six years. I've got, I've got Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf lined up. There's more Shakespeare coming for the art. And, and again and again, I was told, don't worry. <laughs> You'll be lucky to make it through the first season. Oh it's God. not a great project. It didn't work the first time off. It only did three seasons and it was canceled. <laughs> So, you know, I mean... 178 episodes later. <laughs> 170 episodes right. and seven years of yes. contracts yes. later. Yes, um, I was uh, committed. There's a few things I wonder if your, your toolbox of skills going into that, that uh, if they've served you in that role back on The Next Generation through Picard, the, and that is... Shakespearean dialogue, which you seem to respond to even before you grasped what it meant, even when you were a young kid, obviously became a passion of yours. Is there anything about the dialogue or the kind of world of Shakespeare that equipped you for some of the interesting dialogue and uh, scenarios of Star Trek? And then also, I think what Roddenberry, I believe you've said, you know, the main guidance, I guess, that he gave about this character was Horatio Hornblower. Can you just explain what you brought and what he suggested you add to that repertoire as you went into this? Gene never really gave me any direction. And he never really talked to me about who Jean-Luc Picard was, even though he had created him. The only thing he had said was, have you read the Horatio Hornblower books? And I had. I'd been reading them since I was a teenager. He said, well, there's your Jean-Luc Picard. Now, if somebody doesn't know anything about the Horatio Hornblower books, what, what do you think he's, he was wanting you to take from them? Authority, creativity, leadership, and even a sense of humor. And then in terms of this Star Trek vernacular, which words and phrases and things that, you know, you have to speak about it with a straight face and they mean they have great weight and all of that. And also the, the pacing of it all. Was there any value of that earlier Shakespearean work when you are now and, and the way you, you turn a phrase the way Shakespeare did? Or is it just a totally different ballgame? <laughs> Perhaps the most important thing that I learned or that I brought to Star Trek was that for seven years I'd never had pockets in my costumes <laughs> so I never had somewhere to put my hands right. which was such a, a blessing because I have strong opinions about actors who do a lot of acting with their hands in their pockets <laughs> I even urged uh, a prospective president of the United States, he should not put his hands in his <laughs> pockets because it made 
one feel that he wasn't being serious mm. enough, you know. Star Trek was never natural. It was never real life. No matter that we had contemporary actors in our beloved personal group, all of which are still my dear, dear, blessed friends, um, one of whom uh, is coming over to have coffee when we're finished, Jonathan Frakes. Ah, that's great. We're just going to have a catch-up. That's great. And um, there is a formality about Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't mean to make it restrictive or artificial. On the contrary, Shakespeare has to be meaningful and has to be real. That's my first priority. And uh, that was also rather similar with Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I never actually felt it was uh, on the waterfront, for example. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it nevertheless gave me a sense of elevation, of command, um, of leadership, which I'd had. I, I mean, I played Kings of England. Of course, of course. You got the chair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and so um, that was in my system already. And I think, maybe not consciously, but I think I did draw on that, feed on it quite a lot. Jean-Luc Picard, which almost sounds like Jean-Luc Godard, does sound like Jean-Luc This is obviously a Frenchman. And yet, on this show... You're a man who's done many accents, and yet we don't hear a French accent. Was that ever even discussed? Oh, yes. It was? Oh, yes. <laughs> Somewhere in the vaults of Paramount Pictures, <laughs> there might just be a video which shows me reading some of Jean-Luc Picard's lines in a French accent. And in fact... <laughs> It leaked out to my colleagues and they heard it. And of course, they just laughed outrageously. So to entertain them on difficult or late nights or whatever, I would say, well, I would be invited to say, espèce, the final frontier. <laughs> These are the voyage, voyage. <laughs> and it was just crazy. So I... I I spoke English, but we we agreed on certain pronunciations. So you decided not to boldly go towards French. Yeah, with yeah, that, that's right, yes. And uh, I think it was my insistence that we called data data and not data. Yes, and now that uh, there's actually been studies and things that trace it back to that decision that in this country now everybody says data. That's, they, it was, it, you did that. Um, uh, I, I mean, we, we, it was Jonathan Frakes who started this, who used to say, do your duty, Mr. Dada. <laughs> well, oh, so my. there's a night, September 28th, 87, when you guys first went on the air with Next Generation. 20, more than 20 million people watched that. Nothing gets that kind of viewership today. Not, on any... Network, I mean, maybe the Game of Thrones finale or something, but it doesn't happen. The world's obviously changed a lot, but I wonder if you can remember, you know, the next day or whenever it would be that you first realized, wait a minute, my life is now going to be very different because I'm a part of this. It changed almost immediately. 
Not the morning that the first episode aired, because Robert Justman, who was still working on our show at that point, I think he retired at the end of the first season, um, which he was happy to do, I think. <laughs> and um, he said to me, somewhere on the soundstage or somewhere on the lot at Paramount, he said to me, Patrick, are you aware that more people are going to be watching you work tonight than have seen you in total in your career to date? <laughs> I had no idea. And I had been told, look, you know, Bill Shatner couldn't pull it off. And, of course, that's uh, horrifying to hear people say me those words because, of course, he did, as did Leonard and, and the other actors of... Uh, a Star Trek, and they, they, along with Gene, created this impressive uh, lasso that just pulled in and is still, our numbers are still going up. Well, you know, China that didn't, that didn't air Star Trek for a long time began to, and I was in Beijing about four years ago. And after once venturing outside alone, I never did it again. Because <laughs> I didn't feel comfortable or safe on the streets. You're just being mobbed? Yeah. Wow. And and I guess the one area in which you seem to have embraced this kind of love from the Star Trek community was early on, I guess, just talk about conventions. Because this is something people outside of the Star Trek, you know, people who haven't been exposed to it maybe don't fully grasp what the fervor of the fandom and the fact so early on you, you're getting these invitations and probably saying what the hell is this right yeah how did it kind of win you over because eventually you you participated well i was um i was unaware of the following that star trek had even when i was shooting next generation it was not until I attended the first convention. And my fellow actors, Marina in particular, and Jonathan and Brent, they had been going to what I understood were called Star Trek conventions or to sci-fi conventions where Star Trek was featured for the, most of the first season. And I turned all mine down because I couldn't go flying off on a Friday night or a Saturday morning to some part of the United States, and they did. They, they flew long journeys um, because I was preparing the next week's work. I, I Saturday mornings, I did my laundry, and the rest of the weekend, I, I was prepping yeah. because I was always terrified that one morning they'd say, an action, Patrick, and I wouldn't know what to say. Sure. So I had to, and not just learning the lines, but filling it with thoughts and ideas as well, you know. Anyway, when we were filming the week, first weekend of the last episode we shot of season one, I'd been invited, I think, to go to Toronto to do a convention, and I'd accepted it. And people have been saying, oh, come on, Patrick, you, you really should go. It's a wonderful experience. So I accepted it, and I flew there, and I was very apprehensive uh, i was taken around the back of the theater so i didn't go i didn't see the front of this 
well, theatre. It was a big public space. Uh, and I went in the back door and there were a handful of people there met me and shook my hand and they said, uh, well, we'll be ready in about seven or eight minutes. Are you ready? And I said, yes. And I said, but is, is, there, is there anybody out there? <laughs> and they looked at me in such a strange way and said, oh, yes. And I thought, oh, well, that's, that's nice. And I was announced. And I walked on stage and... I was in the middle of what sounded like a volcanic eruption. <laughs> I, it really did. And there were 2,000 people on their feet. This was the first time I'd appeared in public, in this sense, sure. in public, you know. And what a slam on me that was. I had no idea that all of this passion and celebration was for the work I've been doing the last 10 months, but it was. And I imagine it, it, it propelled you through, you know, anything that lasts as long as Next Generation did. And then you've got the four films, uh, 94, 96, 98, 2002. Um, there are going to be emotional, I'm sure, ups and downs for any actor involved. And it's a lot of work and whatever, but I guess the, the constant that probably, um, you know, made it worth enduring was the fact that you knew there are a lot of people out there that are very engaged. It was very supportive. We all felt it. And my my colleagues had been aware of it, and they used to say to me, oh, you you should go, you know, because it's a great experience. I, I wasn't. Well, in fact, it was impossible. I was too busy. Sure. And then um, as time wore on, and I found that it became important for me, not every weekend, but from time to time, for a period, maybe once a month, I would go to a convention because the feedback that I got from that was not available anywhere else. And the, um, you know, because honestly, with all due respect, the... The, the media had not been reflecting the impact that the show was having. Sure. You guys didn't get accolades and things until the very end. The, very, the last season. Yeah. We got significant nominations and one or two awards. Um, well, there's always been this sort of snootiness about genre until recently. Now you've got your... Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and on and on. But I just think that a lot a lot changed in the you guys go off in ninety-four and we're just in the last couple couple minutes here, but the ninety-four you go off next generation and there were those four movies, but it wasn't until twenty twenty, so twenty-six years since there had last been a series that you know, you're off doing other things. A lot of great theater work that some of which I've been lucky enough to see plenty of roles that were completely different deliberately, I think, like Jeffrey or something where couldn't be further from Picard. Some that I think you were worried might not be as different, like Professor Xavier in, in the X-Men films, but became its own thing. But this idea, did you ever in your wildest dreams think there would be a scenario in which you could be convinced to return to doing Picard in a series, ongoing series format? No. 
I think by the time we had shot the four movies, and the last movie, I'm sorry to say, was was not that good, it, it, and it 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 was weak and uh, seemed um, to be quoting other shows all the time, and uh, it, it was dull. I thought so. It was over, but then, yes, in 2020, I was approached by. Uh, Akiva Goldsman and Alex Kurtzman and Michael Shabon and um, there are some yeah heavy hitters. potent names yes. there. I mean Shabon, where are his books? There, oh, they're downstairs. I mean, one of my heroes. Yeah, yeah. and he was going to work for him. So, um, I, I anyway, I turned it down. But I asked if I could meet with them all in order to explain to them why, because I was so. Um, I was so impressed that they had made this offer. And then they all made long speeches. And um, I said, well, that's kind of you, but um, I, I'm looking at a different future. Um, by the time I got home, I changed my mind. And I said to my agent, could you ask them to put everything that they said on paper so that I can study it? And they did, and I changed my mind. And it seems like one of the things you've said is that the, what you liked after X-Men films in great number, they did something with their la the, with Logan yeah. where they completely revamped the character you're playing. Yeah. And in a way, that is what's also happened here with Picard in, in the new series. Exactly. And uh, w what happened with Logan was one of the things that gave me encouragement for this. Um I mean, Logan was a wonderful movie yeah. and a great experience to shoot it. Um, and with full of emotional memories of working with uh, Hugh in particular, who's a beautiful man. I, I, I've come to see that I must not always firmly, passionately, indestructibly believe in my own rightness. <laughs> I can get it wrong. And there's no harm in getting it wrong sometimes. That was my problem as an actor in the early days. I believed you got it right and then you repeated it. No, 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 Patrick. That's not how you become an actor. And so now, I, I mean, I have a wonderful wife, Sonny Ozell. And uh, I turn to her often and say, what, what, what do you think? Should, should I? I, I, don't, I don't think this is, this is me. And she said, why not? And I'd say, well, <laughs> well, think about it a bit more. Brood in it. Have another read. You know, talk to your agent. Right. Talk to your acting pals. And, and I see, oh, maybe there is something here. Now, you mentioned Jeffrey. When Jeffrey came up, it was because I had said to my agent, okay, I'm done. That's <laughs> after the fourth movie, right. when I'd seen it, I'm done. Um, I don't want anything more to do with science fiction or space or spaceships or <laughs> space uniforms, nothing at all like right. that. Find me something that is totally different. And that they happened. came up yes. with Jeffrey, <laughs> right. which was an incredible experience and so much fun. In the last... 30 seconds. Can I just, this is sort of, we close with rapid fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind, if that's all right. If Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or somebody called you up tomorrow or called you up today and said, 
Sir Patrick, we've been doing these trips into space. We'd like to offer you one. Would you say yes? I would pass. You would? Yeah. Because although it would be an extraordinary experience, and I have no doubt about that, and uh, Bill Shatner has done enough of going up there, you know, and has told me about it, but it would not be as though I were entering the world of Star Trek. And you know, the other thing is, what if it went wrong? Mm -hmm. I have a, whole, a lot of plans. Yes. I really do. Yeah. And um, I want to get the most out of what is left of this last quarter of my life. Sure. He said optimistically, <laughs> hopefully. Um, so I think I would pass. But I have to tell you, um, I have nothing but enormous respect for those men that have done that. Sure. Um, it's wonderful. The line of dialogue that's most often shouted at you or asked of you, what's the one that people come back to the most? Engage. Engage. Probably. Engage or make it so. Yes. And then finally, this was the third and apparently final season of Picard, right? Is there any scenario in which we will ever see you again as Picard in new something? Maybe. <laughs> That's the answer people are hoping for. It's possible. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. That was lovely. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.